This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios, proudly sponsored by VFX Unleashed, powered by Amarillo College and Simcor Productions. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I'm your host, and I'm speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 20-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you guys, I make music out of my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hitmakers work from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. Now, before we get into the episode, I want to talk about our sponsor, VFX Unleashed, powered by Amarillo College and Semcor Productions. VFX Unleashed is a complete accredited online VFX school where you can learn how to have a career in the visual effects industry in classes taught by industry professionals. There are programs in all major aspects of VFX production and software, including Photoshop, After Effects, Maya, Nuke, Cinema 4D, Online, fully remote classes start every eight weeks, and a full VFX studio within Amarillo College's Innovation Outpost will open next year, which will have a state-of-the-art soundstage and motion capture studio. You can check out all that VFX Unleashed has to offer and enroll today at vfxunleashed.com. Thank you to VFX Unleashed and Semcor for being our very first sponsor. We are proud to have you. Now, let's get into the show. Today we have a very special guest. Today is co-founder of Noble House, Genesee. If the name Genesee sounds familiar to you, that's really no surprise to me. He's been kind of everywhere from Brooklyn to the Bay Area and from all walks of California living. Having started in the Bay, moving to Brooklyn when he was eight years old and then coming back when he was 19. Jen has really been immersed in all things hip-hop since he was very young. Now, toss that up with the fact that he came home in the height of the Bay Area hip-hop scene with the advent of Digital Underground and Shock G and Pac in the Bay. And you really gotta wonder, actually really don't have to wonder, how Jen became Jen. Now, I know Genesee because of my connection to the Felonious crew and how tight the Noble House and Felonious crews were back in the day and even still today. Now, I think it's no surprise that all of the alumni of Felonious being Carlos Aguirre, Tommy Shepard, Dan Wolf, Keith Pinto, all of them are so close with Genesee and so many of them work with Genesee, even as an honorary member of the Felonious crew, myself included, having just engineered a record that Genesee produced, Los Gemelos, with Carlos Aguirre. Now, we talk about everything in this show from his very early life, coming from the Bay to Brooklyn, coming home from Brooklyn to the Bay, and 
finding his voice, his sound, and becoming Genesee. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Genesee Lewis. Mr. Genesee Lewis, welcome to the podcast. What up, what up? Thank you for having me. Appreciate you, bro. Well, appreciate you for being on. Now, I like starting at the very beginning. Um, and, you know, obviously, I, I grew up around you and the Noble House crew and the Filoni's crew and everything. Um, right. How, how did you get started? Where, where, what was your genesis, shall we Ooh. say? The genesis of Genesee. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would probably start when I was a little toddler, <laughs> you know, like um, my parents were both hippies and um, close with the Grateful Dead and uh, other bands, Pointed Sisters. And, you know, I grew up just like you, like backstage at concerts and, you know, and just, you know, at the Go-Go's hotel room and the, Ramon, <laughs> the Ramones hotel room and and hanging out, you know, with all the all the artists and just being that little kid with his face painted, running around naked backstage, you know? Right. So I think that's like really where I soaked up just my love for the vibrations of music, you know, just like where it like kind of got instilled into my heart, watching uh, all these people's reactions to it, you know, and like, wow, this is really like, this is really making this person happy, you know? It's like, changing their lives. I'm watching it as a kid. And I, you know, I, I'm sure I wasn't going through all that in my head as a little young guy. But now when I look back and think about it, I'm like, yeah, it's definitely, definitely where I got my start and my appreciation of, of just being a performer and, and creating something to share with people, you know? Right, right. So now primarily as a kid, what were you listening to? Um, so when I first started like buying my own wax, I was probably about eight years old and I had ACDC, Def Leppard, Pyromaniacs and yeah, like Back in Black, ACDC was my favorite song and we had the t-shirts. I was actually living in Marin with my mom back then when I was like, you know, between the ages of five and eight. And um, yeah, we used to just roll around singing all those songs. <laughs> and you know, it's literally before hip hop was was born, you know, right? Mm-hmm. And then you know, I had the blessing of my mother moving us to New York in I would say like nineteen eighty two, eighty three or eighty two, and it was this like that's when hip hop was really like you know, sucker MCs was about to drop and jam on it. And right. Yeah, and the message was already getting plays. Right. The Furious Five was the hottest thing on the block. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, when I heard Run DMC, I was like, "Whoa, this is amazing!" And then you know, it just it just trickled across the whole world. Like, it was crazy. Just you know, next thing I know, we were you know carrying our cardboard and going to different different parts of Brooklyn and and breakdancing, battling cats. You know. Mm -hmm. And you know we were rocking, rocking the fat laces in our shoes, and and the airbrush T-shirts, and <laughs> the Kangos, and it was all just like it was happening. It was right. like something new and fresh, and you know. And I was just a kid, man, just you know, ten years old, so just got swooped up in it, and it just kind of manifested, you know, through the different 
different uh, stages and ages of my life. For sure. So now, when this was all happening, like what what was going through your head? Were you thinking, "Oh, this is this got to be my life"? Yeah, I mean, I was as a young age. I wouldn't say that was it. I was just doing it. wasn't thinking about it or nothing. You know, just living in it and. And that's it. It wasn't until um, way down the line when, you know, in high school and uh, my best friends, my crew RNS, they were performing and and putting up wax, and you know, they were like starting to do it. And then it, you know, then it's finally clicked. It was like, you know what? This is something maybe I can do. You know, so I mm-hmm. started dabbling and you know, picking up my pen and freestyling and. You know, because I was already rhyming a little bit and beatboxing, but it was just part of the culture and just part of our everyday life and and not, you know, not something that we would think we could possibly ever use as a a profession or, you know what I mean, or a lifestyle like is crazy. So, yeah. Well, and now look at it. I mean, just beatboxing alone, you know, Dougie Fresh, everybody thinks of as like, one of the most formidable beatboxes out there, you know, a million percent and performers. Yeah. And, and just performer in general. And exactly. just like screw beatbox are one of the best musicians out there. Yep. Um, and, and just has that great energy. And he really did all that and more for the beatboxing community. And now look at the beatboxing community. It's amazing. Yep. It's so, it's so fully transcended where it came from. It's, pretty crazy it's so true yeah in the fifth grade i uh for the talent show i did lottie dottie with my homie crime master t did the beatbox and i was doing slick rick's parts i'll never forget that crazy you know it's uh it's not bad uh going for the i think one of the most sampled and copied songs on the planet for your talent show all right, all right, yeah. It was fresh. It was fresh out on wax at that time. They were still playing it on the radio and everything. It's you know, it's showing how little age I got. On yeah, oh, yeah, I'm definitely showing but, my age in this. But hey, but, it's all we keep it real. We keep it gully. No, 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 no. That's it's it's all love. But like, you know, I just find it. It's it's fascinating. Hearing what's on the radio today, well, what's left of radio, unfortunately, but it's it's fascinating hearing what's on radio today. And then, you know, like, I remember my friends when we started figuring out what hip hop was for ourselves. Right. And, and then discovering who Slick Rick and Dougie Fresh are. Wow. So you amazing. And, and, and there's like, there, there was a time where it was mainstream enough to be Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick, where that was on the radio. Right. Isn't that crazy? It was literally on the radio. And so was, so was, you know, UTFO and, and like all the Roxanne Shantae records. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's crazy. I have to tip my hat to you because there's not many, you know, you're part of the 1%, I would say, or, or 10% at the most of, a, you know, 19, 20 year old that actually knows who, Slick Rick and, and Dougie Fresh and the record Lottie Dottie is, you know what I'm saying? Well, I don't cause trouble and I don't bother nobody. Come on, we're just the man that's on, on the, the mic. mic. Mm-hmm. 
That's hip hop right there, baby. Well, you know, I, I you, think you found it. <laughs> well, right. I mean, you know, it's it's weird seeing the divide in hip hop now because, like, obviously there was division in hip hop when it was first starting. There was the East Coast West Coast thing. There was, you know, Bronx the, and Queens. The, yeah. There was Bronx and Queens. There was Brooklyn. Yep. Brooklyn versus everybody, yeah, believe yeah, it. Bro- Brooklyn versus the world. Exactly. Um, there, there was, you know, South Central v. Compton. There was yep. Oak Oaktown v. L.A. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was, there was all of that competition. But the main competition that I think of then, as far as divisions go, is like the even which is which is strange to me because it all seems so intertwined is like the gangster rap versus the not gangster rap. Oh, that's always been a, been a doozy. Yep. And the funniest thing to me is, and, and maybe it's some, some people will cuss me out for saying this, but honest to God, like to my head, having listened to probably now, thousands of hours of gangster rap and not so gangster rap like yes the stories are different but the the sentiment is still basically the same yes you know like no nobody's gonna nobody's gonna say that um that the message is gangster rap but that's that's the hood it is though, yeah. I mean, it's, you can call it reality rap, which can be like a section of gangster rap. I mean, if if you don't think Wu Tang is gangster rap, I think you got <laughs> right. a, a, something else coming to you. You know, I grew up on the crime side, New York Times side. Staying alive was no job. You know what I mean? Like this, this is about the struggle. And for me, it's always been a really fine line, bro. Because you know, I was always an MC first, and you know, a culture pusher, and and but I was from the streets, you know, and and I always had to keep it real. So I had all these stories to tell, you know, in my rhymes when I was recording my first album, The Years of My Life, like, you know, about my Aunt Ruthie being murdered and, and you know, about my friends dying and this one's carrying guns and this one's selling drugs. And, and you know, even though I was an MC and I was like, oh, I don't like gangster rappers, you know, they, they that's that's lame, you know, but I had to. I had to stay true to who I was. So I had, I had to incorporate that a little bit. So, and it was crazy. Cause like, you know, Noble House and Felonious and, and all these groups that would come through all these clubs in San Francisco, we, you know, we were part of the, I don't want to call it the backpack community, but you know, that's what we were. We were, you know, we were the MCs, the DJs, the B-boys, the B-girls, the real, the real deal, you know? Right. But I, I was always just a little bit, you know, thugged out in that crowd, in that crowd, you know? Sure. Yeah. So it was a weird, it was a weird dynamic, but it's actually, I think it was in my favor because, you know, I always got respect from all the gangsters around, around the town. And, you know, it was always kept a good repertoire with all the, all the homies on the block. And, you know, like, you know, they wasn't like, oh, here's Genesee, that backpack rapper. No, they're like, you know, here's Genesee, that real spitter, you know, talking about, what he really went through, you know? Right. It's a it's a crazy fine line, that whole, yeah, the gangster rap and real hip hop with me. And I always got to make sure I, you know, toe my feet in the right direction, you know? 
Totally, totally. I mean, you know, just continuing on this point, one of my favorite tribe songs has to be uh, the Diggy track off of Midnight Marauders, 8 Million Stories. Okay, yep, yep. And I don't think anybody's going to call that gangster rap, but that is, I mean, it's in the name. It is a story. Right, right. And, And at the end of the day, a lot of the... A, a lot of the gangster rap started as an eyewitness account. I guess nowadays is through through Death Row and Pac and Biggie, and mm-hmm. you know it turned from these guys were pulling up and drawing on each other to I'm drawing on a motherfucker, right? And and now look and now look at the hip hop industry now, yeah. Which hey is super cool that that hip hop has become what it's become and, and become so mainstream, but it's, it's funny to, to, to watch the, the, the Genesis and the transformation of yeah. what it once was. You could say demise. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a want to be a hater. And, you know, I definitely try to give the, the young guys a, a benefit of the doubt and listen to as much, you know, possible things i'm waiting to hear the next nas i'm waiting to get blown away and be like okay wow look at that beat selection you know he actually didn't pick a beat with the 808 and trap drums you know what i mean there's actually that old ozzy brother sample in there like wow you know what i mean i'm looking for the for the real deal and and it's out there it's out there but you're not gonna find it on the radio you're not gonna find it in the mainstream you're gonna have to go on youtube and and do your research and find the real underground hip hop. And it's, it's definitely still going. Well, there is real hip hop still going. And, and you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. No, I love it. I love there, it. There's a yeah. little bit of it still left in the mainstream. Of course. Of course. I mean, we can't, we can't downplay people. I mean, Drake, like, for Drake, for instance, Drake got bars. He can spit. You know what I mean? And he can he, spit, but he's, he's his, one of the biggest artists in the world. He, he is. And, and he can spit, but I don't think he's, even though he's got, um, he, he's got bars and he knows how to rhyme, but like running through the six with my woes yeah, sounds a whole lot cooler than it actually means. Yep. You know, I, I look at, and, and I can't, you know, I, I, I can't defend the beat selection necessarily, at least on, on something like, uh, damn but kendrick oh yeah coming out with like pimp a butterfly yeah and, and and just like made a basically made a straight jazz record but hip-hop yep or yep. like uh Took page from the trap cork from Elish, alishi muhammad you know? yep now kendrick's one of the one of the flame flame carriers you know what i mean he's, or, he's keeps it going or like uh god rest his god rest his soul mac miller yeah, for sure. Or, or like, um, and I, I, I appreciate him because he was a guitar player and a bass player and a and a piano player and like, love it. Yeah, was a, was a was a musician as well as a rapper. And the same and the same thing goes for guys like um, Anderson Pack. Yeah, who now is going out and mind you, I'm a funk musician primarily. You know, oh, and he's going so. out being a funk guy with with. With the Latino kid from Hawaii, and I look at it, and I'm going, man, these Love motherfuckers it. are bringing my genre back. 
Gotta love it. Yeah. And, and and I look at them and I go, God, Silk Sonic 2 is going to end up being a fucking straight ahead hip hop record. It it has to be from the way they're going. Right. Or if it's not a hip hop record, it's going to be sampled by a shit ton of hip hop artists. At least the <laughs> I ones, was about to say. Exactly. <laughs> at least the ones that understand what it means. Yeah, totally. Or um, like... I know we're getting on a tangent here and I'll, I'll wind it back in a second, but like uh cube brought out um, new funkadelic. Do you remember right. when he put that song out? No, I don't. How does, how does that one go? Which Come through that? bumping that new funkadelic. He, he, um, he basically put a parliament beat as his backdrop. Oh yeah. And, yeah. And, and built a built a a song and and a, really an album off of that feel, right? And it was super impressive. Totally. So yeah, I'm I'm all with the full time Jack moves. I go I go hard in the paint. <laughs> no, I feel that. I feel that. <laughs> if I hear something and something connects, and you know what I mean, that's that's what that's how I was trained in hip hop. Is there's nothing really off limits. You know, mm-hmm. unless it's something, another hip hop musician song, which are usually that's usually a no no, or you know, it's something, something used to be it's something that's used before. Oh God forbid, you can never use some sample that's been used before. Well, in hip hop, in hip hop culture, it's all good, well, right? <laughs> well, and also in hip hop culture, it's not covering; it's biting. You're biting somebody's shit because you, exactly. you didn't experience that. Which trip? Which brings me to another point. I hit up my uh, my other boy the other day. We were chatting, and I was like, "Man, I made this beat, man, the other day, and I, I'm just spitting. The world is yours over it, dude." And I'm like, "Is it okay to do a cover song?" Like, <laughs> well, I mean, are they gonna roast me? <laughs> you know what I mean? <clears throat> well, here here's the thing that I kind of there, there's some stuff. Maybe you agree with me. Maybe you. Maybe you don't. Let, let let me know. But like, you know, Snoop did Lottie Dottie. Yep. Yeah. On, on the first on the first record. Oh, forget it. Yeah, this list is extensive. Absolutely. And no, ain't nobody saying he bit shit. They right. they knew that was all love and out of respect. And you also like I don't know if you saw this video. If I can find it, I will send it to you. Okay. But he went and did. Lottie Dottie with fucking Dougie Fresh backing him. Oh, sick. Of course he did. Um that was his whole plan the whole time. <laughs> like yeah, and, and and he talked about his love and respect for for Slick Rick and for Dougie Fresh and for the music of of his youth, the hip hop of mm-hmm. his youth. And and you know he's not trying to bite anything, he's doing it out of love. So there's there's to my head to get back to the point that I was Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. There's there's some of it where it is biting because like you, you like Drake, for example. Yeah, with the two short. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's he's like if he went and covered uh if if he went and tried to cover, I don't know, uh Dear Mama. Right. That's going to be biting. Yeah. That's going to be mad biting. Because kids. Damn, that might be tight, bro. (laughs) That would be fucking hilarious. That might be fire. (laughs) 
But that's I, I, nobody's going to deny that that's him biting that shit. Right. Same thing with the message. If he tried to, you know, <laughs> don't tell me I'm close to the edge. Like he isn't going to that. That's biting. I mean, like, I mean, yeah, even his joint right now that's on top of the billboard, you know, up there in the top of the billboard charts. The, I'm too sexy. Same, <laughs> same thing. Right. Because like, that's not your story. Um, exactly exactly but if somebody were to cover i don't know i'm gonna kick it to my youth because this because these motherfuckers are stupid and funny and crazy if somebody were to cover a fucking new boy song nobody's gonna call that biting because what were they rapping about they were rapping about girls that's pretty universal yeah you know um and like you you hear ben (laughs) jay On, on like a Vlad interview or something, and he goes, "We didn't know what to rap about. We wanted to, we wanted girls, so we just rapped about girls." Man, hey, exactly. Hey, good for you. But if anybody covers that shit, like nobody's gonna bat an eye that that's biting. Not really. True. True. Yeah. Because it's not this deep intellectual thought. It's not like you know. It's not your personal experience you had as a as a youth or you know. It's it's definitely more general and I think accessible for people to tap in on that energy. Right. So that's that's my personal opinion. There's like levels of of what right right. Um, and that's not to say that people shouldn't cover those classic songs like the message, but people are still gonna go, motherfucker, that's biting. That's not fucking. That's, that's yeah. not like maybe you did that out of respect, but you bit that shit. Right. Um, yeah. To me, it's a little bit about education as well. Like, you know, I feel like not enough of the young, young guys, you know, have really sat down and listened to Illmatic or mm-mm. 36 Chambers, you know, or um, yeah, Midnight Marauders, like you said, for instance, or De La Soul is Dead, you know, or Things like, Fall Apart. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think it's as as part of the, you know, one of the last Jedi's up in here. Like it's <laughs> right. our you know, my obligation personally to to make sure that, you know, that that part, the the, the way we live the culture is is, you know, it has to be translated, it has to be taught. Like you guys have to really know that it just wasn't just, you know, vibing out to a song. Like this was like we would sit there and write down the lyrics on, you know, a piece of loose leaf paper. <laughs> you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? It's like, like really break down what they're saying and then, you know, and then discuss it, you know, really deep and, and, and get to the bottom of it. And, well, you know, and, and nowadays it's more like, I think everyone's drawn more to like an energy, you know, it's just like you said, it doesn't matter what they're really saying. They're, you know, it feels good. They can move their body and feel them 808s and, bounce bounce on the trap drums to about you know 120 beat 130 40 beats per minute you know i think it's like a whole different approach as the way the listeners go on so i just want to like kind of remind them the process the way we used to ingest hip-hop and the way we used to break it down and digest it and and you know, it wasn't just okay. I feel good. Okay, boom, move on to the next one. You know, short right. attention span stuff. If this was like some really like we were studying, like we were students, you know, of the game, and 
studying every single angle, all the five elements, whether it be breakdancing or, you know, beatboxing right, right. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like, even when I was a little kid in the mission, like, when you were in the hood, it a, a brand new freestyle mixtape that got passed around, that was how you got the news. Like, yep. who got shot? Yep. Who's in the hospital? Who's dead? Who do I yep. got to weep for? Who do I got to murder? Like, yep. that's, that's, that's real deal. And and that level is being lost. I, I think it's like they they were the storytellers because they had to be. Right. And, you know, for instance, yeah, even on the other side of the production side, like to make a beat, you know, I would, man, I, Cosmo would come to my house at eight in the morning. You know what I mean? We we go to the candy store, get some candy, smoke a blunt, <laughs> and go and go right, you know, go right to Amoeba in 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 the skull, go to Amoeba, hit up all the dollar crates, you know, buy like at least like $40, $40 worth of records, you know, which is about 40 records. Then we, you know, cr- drive across the bridge and go to Rasputin's and do the same thing there and go to the Amoeba over there too. And, you know, we See, take that's... these records home and we sit there for hours and go through all these records, man. Right. Well, and, that was that know, was the lucky thing about me being a kid is you could you could go to Hate Street and there was both an amoeba and a Rasputin there. Yes, <laughs> yes, I know there was no Rasputin when we were young. Exactly. Yeah. So you know the process, and then you know we find you know find go, and then we go get our old old records and find some drums and and you know it's just nowadays kids are just loading up Fruity Loops and all these pre-factored, pre-made loops that musicians, you know, already did in the studio or just, you know, getting on splice and grabbing a splice loop, grabbing some splice drums, you know, put in a song mode and it's like done in 10 minutes, you know, and we would spend like, <laughs> you know, I used to walk to school in the snow 40 miles with my bare feet. Uphill both ways. <laughs> Y'all, you feel me? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, and like there, there's a level of production that's also gone in that the production was a part of the story too. Like, yes. Like you didn't just, like, like people turned up with lyrics without an idea for a beat and the beat would inform what kind of song that was going to be. Like you weren't, you weren't going to hear something that sounded like straight out of Compton with some guy going, I married my best friend. Like that doesn't happen. Right. I mean, maybe it does, but you're certainly not going to get any traction from it. (laughs) Right. Now you're going to get clowned. Yeah. (laughs) Now this, this brings up an important thing for me to get back to your story. Yeah. Of you were a rapper first and you rhymed first. Where did production come from for you like what 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 got you into production and 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 did you find yourself like like we were just talking about uh doing production based on raps or did you start uh stories based on production like how how does how was your approach when you started and what got you started yeah well i'm i was always you know so i was the rapper and i was uh working with my producers and you know i i realized i was always the one that was like bringing Bring in the vinyl that had the sample on it. Bring in the vinyl that had the drums on it. Telling them how to chop it. <laughs> telling them how to put this. You know, then 
humming the bass line. And you know what I mean? I realized I was doing it all behind the scenes as a rapper that I might as well just, you know, take it to the next step. And then I got tired of waiting for cats to make me beats and waiting for cats to send me beats. And, you know, I, they didn't do it the way I had it in my head, you know? And it's funny because like when I was in that stage, I had like this, this little rolling 10 second sampler. It was like a little, it looks like, like the Apollo or something. It's just a box with a circle on it. Right. It was a little 10 second sampler. And I used to use it just enough to, you know, just find, find a, what a guitar beat. Boom, 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 boom. And then I, then I had my turntables and I, you know, I get like old breakbeat records uh, that the homies were putting out back then. And then like Dusty Fingers or something like that. And then, you right. know, find find a nice little drum loop and, you know, match it up. And then, then that, that, that's when I would, you know, I would start writing rhymes and, you know, we would dump it into Elronis's four track straight out of that sample. So this is like even before we had beats and we would rhyme over those and, L still has those four track recordings, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> Love that. And um, yeah, so, and then after that, it was just like, yeah, it was just, it was supply and demand. Like I needed beats and I needed them done a certain way that was in my head. So I just had to, I just took the leap of faith. And first sampler I bought was uh, 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 Insonics EPS. The 16 that, was really, plus. <laughs> that was really popular in the, uh, in the jungle scene in the UK. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And then that was cool. That was cool. I made a couple beats on there. I wasn't like, it wasn't as smooth, you know, as, as I thought it was going to be. Cause like, that's what the, that's what the cats are working on when I was sitting behind them and stuff. But then man, my homie Paul Nice moved out here from New York and we were roommates and, uh, you know, he was a, he was a legendary hip hop dude, man, that was real connected on the hip hop scene and was already, you know, on tour with, with uh, you know, BDP and Tokyo and stuff like that, like super dope stuff like that right. we were like, that we weren't, you know, now, nowadays we do stuff like that, but we hadn't done anything like that at that point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was totally cool. And um, yeah, so he had his MPC 62. Ooh. And I was sitting right behind him watching him, you know, chop everything up. And I was like, oh, yeah, with the pads. And then, you know, I was like, OK, so I went I'm, I'm getting the newest, newest one they have right now. I'm, I'm, you know, I was busting my ass parking cars. It was a valet. I don't know if you know if you ever seen a Buckeye Roadhouse or you drive by the Mill Valley right right on mm-hmm. that side of the highway. That big like looks like a big yep. ski lodge. Yeah, I worked there for like 10 years, man, running the parking lot, making hella bread. <laughs> it was it was awesome. It was a good time. But um, yeah, so man, we went out and and then I moved to Frisco with Paul Nice. And I was like, all right, I'm taking I'm taking this money that I got saved up and I'm buying the NPC. I bought the NPC 2000 XL. And dude, it was just like. It was like, man, when you just throw throw the baby in water and the baby starts swimming, <laughs> you know, like I just like, oh, this is great. OK, you can cancel the pad with this one. You can turn down the speed with this one. You can do that. Oh, man, this is amazing. So I was you could put the snare on one. Like I was just like I was a kid in the candy shop and I was loving it. And, I, you know, I produced a couple songs. Um, nothing really got used. And then. 
we ended up moving to, um, you know, I was spending time as an MC. We ended up moving like right down the block from Storyville with uh, Ran, Ran uh, was, um, that used to throw the parties at Storyville was my roommate. Mm-hmm. So it was like a real, like the house was crazy. Like after the, all the performances of Storyville, the whole club would basically walk to my house and dude, the walls would sweat in there. We'd have 50 people in there to like five or six in the morning, like going crazy. And I had, I had my MP. I, you know, I had, there was only a few rooms in the house. I had one of the rooms. I just keep my door open with the MP. You know, I got a lot of encouragement from my community and a lot of like great feedback on my first beats. And, you know, it just helped me build the confidence to, um, to, to go for it. And I, you know, you know, I knew all the MCs in town already, so I just, you know, bump in. I'm like, yo, by the way, I'm making beats now. You know, can, let, let's let's work. You know, let me make something for you. And I right. must have gave I must have gave away like you know a hundred beats, my first hundred beats. Just give gave them away. I'd pick the keep the best ones for myself, and you know that turned it out turned out to be like you know the years of my life, Volume One, my first album that I dropped in 2000, and. um yeah, like so after that, and then okay, I was like, you know what? I, it's time, man. I'm ready. Like, if you guys want to, now they all wanted my beats, you know. And I was like, all right, well, if you guys want my beats now, you know, it's time. You're gonna have to start paying me, you know. So that's it, man. It just and then it just rolled from there, man. I started selling beats for you know, I I, I try to set it up at five hundred as as the first payment at first, and and. You know, I work with some of the homies. Homies be like, yo, I only got, you know, 200. You know, can you do this for me, Jan? I'm like, it's all good, man. Come on. You know? So, and then, yeah, just the the word on the street started buzzing. And um, I did this record for my boy Prozac Turner um, from Foreign Legion. And he actually, uh, he got a demo deal with DreamWorks Records. So they gave him five grand to record his demo. Back when the game was way different, man. They actually the labels will actually Wait, pay for you. When, when the labels demo. had money. Yes. Yes, they were paying. And that's why I was charging five hundred because the just the in two thousand, the bar, the bar was really set high as far as what people got paid and you know, on the on the production side. So it was right. cool. So anyway, he uh, we did the demo and he ended up getting a deal and got signed to DreamWorks. So when it came time to do the album, um, you know, we just kept working. We kept working. I kept feeding them beats. And, you know, three of the songs ended up being on the album. And, um, man, they were paying 5K a beat. And that was just, you know, they had on that same album uh, uh, producing tracks. So it was me. It was Jay Dilla, Alchemist, Super Dave West. Like this dude went and got like all our favorite producers, you know, at the time. It's it's like... (laughs) Star studded like everybody you'd fangirl over. Exactly. And then the fan. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, man, okay, I'm here, you know, sitting at the table with these great. So yeah, man, I ended up getting getting 15k for the three beats that I produced for him. Me and a couple of the homies when uh we went on to the theater on Van Ness and we watched Eight Mile. <laughs> and I remember coming home and just, you know, as we were walking the door, I checked my mailbox and opened it. And it was like a check for 10K. Like after watching the movie, too, I was so amped up. I was like, <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? Like, I can do this, man. Like, they're paying me for what I do. Like, I need to go full fledged, you know? Mm-hmm. So I immediately just took that money 
and we were we had just moved to uh, to Richmond at the time because Frisco, we all got pushed out. The rents were getting crazy. It was you know gentrification was first starting to happen, and you know the the bubble was 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 growing. And uh, so yeah, El Rock found this dope spot for us in Richmond. It was like a cool house that we all ended up getting. And I took that money and man, I went and bought like the brand new G4, which was like the hottest Mac at the time, you know. And I, I remember. Went, yeah, I got the Rode NT2 with my mic, and you know, we had the Avalon preamp and like all the basic, Pri- you know, prime like 2002, 2003 era. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, Pro, Pro Tools, and you know, we were up and running. And you now, know, wait a minute. Just, Here, here's here's yeah. a question for you, because because I I had early. <laughs> I, I, I was in Pro Tools a little later than you, but I I, I had a uh, an MP rig. Were you LE or MP? I was LE. Right. Yep. Yep. I had no board attached to it. I was there was and it was that was a first for me because everything was always, you know, out the box at that point, and now all of a sudden everything's in the box. Mm-hmm. So it it was a definitely like learning curve was happening, but like I was telling you earlier, like I you know I was teaching everyone everything I was learning, and we were all learning from each other. And you couldn't go to YouTube and and get instructions at that, well, that point. Was still, it, that it, that it, was still like didn't exist. Well, that was <laughs> what three years away for what YouTube is now, and then another probably five years until people actually started doing a tutorials exactly. Right. So, you know, we really ha- had to go and call like, you know, the OGs like David Simon Baker at Laughing Tiger and San Rafael, who's been, you know, engineer there for 10 years. Like, yo, how do I, <laughs> you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? Or call One Drop Scott or, you know what I mean? Any of the engineers that I had worked with, like, yo, what do I do? Blah, blah, blah. You actually had to read the manual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, you couldn't just go and download the manual online. You had to, you know, write away to a company and get them to send it. Right. If, if, you know was, what I mean? Like, if, if it, it crazy, if you bought bro. the gear and it didn't have the manual, you had to fucking like go scour for that manual. Yeah, we were tossing manuals out at that point. Like we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. Now wait a minute. Let me let me backtrack for a minute. Yeah, yeah. When did you come back to the Bay after being in New York? Okay, so I moved back to New York, um, back to the Bay when I was 19. Gotcha. Yep, I was 19. I went through some crazy stuff like in uh, in Brooklyn before before I moved out here, like getting abducted and taped up and all types of drama with gangsters and police and everything, you know? So I came out here like a like a shaking puppy, man, after going through the storm and just, you know, my love for hip hop is what really, really got me through, man. I linked up with L like a little bit after that and L, you know, Elronius, man, legendary Elronius Diversifier, he really put me on in the game. Like he, he took me under his wing, you know, he's a couple of years older than me. He took me under his wing and showed me how to record music in a four track and you know, showed me how to go down to City Hall and get a fictitious business name license and start our own company and secure investors. And, you know, we were pressing up our own wax that we released in uh, 1997. You know what I'm saying? Right. 
So yeah, we were like, you know, in the forefront of the independent Bay game, you know, the people that one of the first, first crews, man, that was actually really pumping out records, man. Right. So how did the crew get started? And where, where, where did Noble House come from? Yeah. So, um, Noble House is this book. It's a series of novels. They're like 1200 page novels, man. You got to pick them up one day, brother. Beautiful. I suggest them to everybody. They're really amazing. And they, they break down, um, for when, when, uh, Europeans first infiltrated into Asian culture. So the first, you know, Dutch ships that sail into Japan and the first time, you know, the the uh, Chinese people see barbarians pulling up on our coast and it starts all the way there from the beginning and goes all the way into the present time. And the Noble House is this company run by Dirk Stroon, who is the Taipan of the Noble House, which means, you know, he's the boss of the Noble House. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, yeah, it's this company that, that it, it keeps, it weathers through the centuries, you know? And it just becomes bigger and stronger and it's just a whole entity. And it always connected with me. And, you know, the time when I went to go start my own label, I was like, hmm, that's, I mean, we the noble house, you know? And I was, you know, working, that's when we were still living in the sunset and working with the uh, street reporters and Don Lowe, DJ Zatch. And, you know, we had this crew, Cosmo, Global, PDS, like we would always be together, always, Genevieve and Kayla D. And we became more like a family than a record label. Like we, you know, we'd be at each other at, you know, each other's mom's funeral, you know, for instance, or, you know, Christmas morning, Thanksgiving dinner, like we were all together, you know, because right. like we didn't have much of our own families and, you know, we all had a lot in common and we would always, you know, get together on the holidays. And just every, it just, it just, we just became so close that, you know, we, we, we needed something to call this and crazy. It's like, not like we searched or thought it just happened naturally. It's like, yo, we the Noble House. Boom. Rocky was like, yep. All right. Bet. <laughs> That's right. it. And then, you know, people started, you know, once you have something to to represent and to wave that flag, that's when, you know, people get really excited, and, you know, like pump it, you know, patriotic about about the crew. Right. So, yeah, we just started, man. We were we you I mean, you know, <laughs> we were just getting in everybody's face telling, them, yo, noble house, you know, mm-hmm. that was that was. That was who we were, and we were. It was a. It was an eclectic collective, you know. We all came from different walks of life, different colors, shapes, and sizes, and demographics, and backgrounds, and we were like a nice melting pot of you know black, white, Latinos, and Asians all working together for a common goal. Right. So now, wait a minute. You moved down to L.A. at some point, right? Yes. So Kayla D., um, who I just mentioned, uh, I started, so I, so I went right around the time when I first started selling those beats and making beats. You know, some beats I came up with that were like R&B beats. Mm-hmm. And R&B was like really big at the time. 
it was as big as pop music right now, you know? Right. And man, I just, I started writing these songs. I don't know where they came from, but I started writing lyric and melody and, and I, I, you know, I, I, I brought them to Kayla and Genevieve, who are the singers in our crew. And I'm like, you guys, you guys think this is dope? And they're like, what? Did you write that? I'm like, yeah. They're like, yo, we got to record that. So, you know, I just, so then I started writing songs for them. And then I started writing songs for other people. And, and, you know, me and Kayla went on a whole different tangent. And then um, a few years down the line, man, Kayla, Kayla gets a, gets like this, publishing deal offer from this little tiny company called Cobalt. Hmm. And and, um, yeah, she goes to get signed. And then when she's about to get signed, uh, the publisher realizes, like realize that like my name is a co-writer on like all her songs. Right. Sure. So he wants to meet me too. And we fly down, they fly us down to LA, put us up, rent a cars and all that. And they, um, yeah, man, they ended up, we ended up, I ended up signing with them. Me and Kayla did like a, a development deal, publishing deal with Cobalt. And we just started writing pop songs, man. It was crazy. Like they were, they were putting us in the room with all the biggest producers. And we were going back down and forth to LA for like two years. And, you know, we're in there working with the Black Eyed Peas and, and Britney's team and Rihanna and like mm-hmm. just all all the big artists that were that were doing, you know, the number with the top 10 and Billboard is basically the only people we were aiming for. Right. And yeah, so we so and after going back and forth, like, it, you know, we were had a, it's coming out of our budget because they're paying us. So, you know, all these flights going back and forth and rental cars and hotels and Luckily, Genevieve moved down to L.A. by then, so we would just stay at Genevieve's house every time we went down, which was cool because we always, you know, after recording music, we'd go home and record music with Viva. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know what? I was like, that's it, man. I, I, I got to move down there, man. It's time to go for it. Like, I'm, you know, they got me, they got me sitting there in in all these crazy record label, you know, in the universal building, sitting, playing my records for Teresa White's, who's, you know, or Mike Karen, or, you know, the biggest A&Rs and like, these people can really change my life, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, man, I just had to go, go for Gusto, uh, go for the Gus, uh, Gusto. Me and my wife moved down to LA and um, made it happen. Yeah. So I just had to move down there, man. Just had to move down there and, and go for it. And I have to say, it's definitely one of the best decisions I ever made. So what was the what was the decision like to then come back up here? So, yeah, well. Because you're back a here. Thing called, a thing called, yes, a thing called parenthood popped up into our lives. <laughs> this beautiful boy named Jackson River Lewis. And, you know, we, we didn't have any family in LA and all my family's in New York and my wife's family's up here in the Bay. So we're like, you know what, let's, let's go back where we have a little bit of support, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit of help. And so we was like, all right, we packed it all up and we drove, drove back up to the Bay and it's just being back home, man. It just created a whole different mind space for me. You know, like when I was, down there in LA, I was just focusing on, you know, writing for all the big, great artists. And 
I swear, bro, as soon as I stepped on the soil back in the Bay, all of a sudden, I, I just, all I wanted to do was rap and chop up beats. And it was like, you know, it was like 2002 again, you know? Right. I was just like, you're, okay, you're, yeah. You're, your creativity stayed here, or at least that aspect of your creativity stayed here. It Maybe. did, it did, and I, I recorded, I recorded a bunch of hip hop while I was down there, and you know, and no matter what I do is hip hop, even if I'm writing a pop song, like I'm using hip hop culture in there. It, you can always tell, you know, that okay, this is coming from a hip hopper, you know, even if it's a ballad, like I'm gonna put a little hip hop slang in there or something you know and that's what actually had me had me one up on a lot of the writers in la because <laughs> i had all the hip-hop slang i had the new york slang and i had the bass slang and i would just you know incorporate it into everything and make little ratchet r&b records that you know really you know felt like they were some brand new dope shit you know coming from my old 40 year old ass <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so but yeah as soon as i got back home man it was just like okay let me you know and everybody's all my homies are like what's up what's up with your music and you know like, you know i'm doing this now and they're like come on bro you know you're one of the greats you're one of the best you gotta you can't stop rhyming you know so I was like, all right, man, let's do it. And then I did. It was just a snowball effect. I just started falling in love with it more and more again. <clears throat> like falling back with my first love again, you know? Mm -hmm. Coming back home, man, literally and figuratively. So it was just like, okay, let's bring it back full circle, man. Right. So now let me ask you this. Since since we're on the topic of like falling falling in love with your first love over again mm -hmm. how has your workflow for your personal music changed since moving to LA and coming back well now you know I'm a different animal like I can incorporate all my tricks that I've gained throughout the years and I put it into every record you know whether it just sure. be some whether it just be something simple, but, you know, just it's mostly engineering tricks that I've learned from working with some of the top producers in the game down in L.A. And, uh, you know, I'll use it, use some things here and there. Um, but as far as, you know, raps, no, nah, it's I'm I'm still like in my 90s bag when I'm writing rhymes. And um Production wise is where where it really does come in handy. All all the tricks that I learned down there, you know, because I I'll, I'll put you know I learned how to do some nice little filters and sweeps and and you know just some mixing techniques that that we do in pop music that you can you know actually do in some hip hop records. You know, whether I'm working with a singer, or flipping the auto tune a certain way or whatever, you know. Sure. So now let's let's get into the engineering side of it. Obviously, I'm um, I'm an engineer. I mean, I yeah. the the work that we did together was you producing and me being the engineer. Right. So like just from an engineering perspective, I'm I'm very curious, what does your workflow look like? Um it's real simple. I usually either I'm either I have my beat already um tracked out in the Pro Tools mm -hmm. or 
best way, most of nine times out of 10, I have an MP3 I'm working with, or maybe, you know, seven times out of 10. So I got my template in Pro Tools all set up, has all my all my buses and all my um, mic lines and everything's just perfect the way I would set it up if I was just about getting ready to record, you know? Right. So I got my template set up. Literally, all I have to do is load up the template, drag my MP3 onto an audio track, and then I just press three and go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, and I write... I write all my rhymes still nowadays. A lot of my friends, like, you know, even great MCs that I work with, like Cosmo and Haji Springer, like, they just get in the booth and they punch line for line nowadays. They don't even write nothing down and it'd be the dopest stuff ever. And they've been trying to get me to try it for years. <laughs> but I'm just one of those old school dudes. I like to sit with my pen and my pad and visualize stuff. And, and I like to see it in front of me, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, you know, I'm writing on my phone. I'm not writing on paper, you know, it took, took a decade for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I was just talking to you about, um, before we hit record about the, the pop rock band that I've been working f- with out of Richmond. Yeah. Richmond repping. Um, rich, rich. Yes, sir. The rich. <laughs> and, and since we're talking about the sunset, I'm, I'm fucking in the middle of the sunset right now. Sunset. Rapping. Love it. Love it. Um, but you know, uh, just just on the topic of writing lyrics, you know these young cats, they're, and obviously these guys that I've been working with are in that ten percent or or in that eight percent of people that can actually hold their own in conversation, you know. But the, nice. these guys that I've I've been working with, it's interesting because they they take a hybrid approach to writing lyrics. Mm-hmm. Like they'll sit with their phone with a especially when they have like a quick idea but when they want to flesh something out then they start getting the pencil and the pad out and they're actually like looking at it and like going through and like they leave space on the lined piece of paper so they can like put a couple of different rhyming words there to like interchange and cross I do that. out i do that absolutely leave so a little two bar hole that you need to fill later or something yeah right and so it's it's interesting watching them work because they they don't just work digital and they don't just work on paper it's That's fascinating dope. it's That's really dope. fascinating yeah i love that i love that and yeah, like, you know, that's the way, so that was the hip hop stuff. When I do my pop songs, that's the way I do it too. I literally just, you know, drag the beat. Like I said, I press three and I'll do, I'll do mumble tracks for the first 10 takes. Just some straight, you know, mumbles just to try to get my melody together. You know what I mean? And, and like not and, even, and nah, and just and say, but a, da, 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 da. you know what I mean? And then I'll right. go and put, put my words to it later and try to keep the same cadence sometimes you got to switch it around but pretty much it's just adding words to my mumble track you know and i'll i'll try to mumble you know all the definitive sections of the songs from a verse to a pre-hook to a chorus to a post hook you know right so i have all my parts and then like like you said like your homies and the rich dude then that's when i'll go and be more technical with it for sure. You know, I'll start plugging in some lyrics or come up with a song title or, you know, maybe even add some chords or a chord change for a bridge or something like that, you know? Well, it's funny you mentioned mumbling because, like, I, I, do, a, I do a similar thing. I'll write a, 
I don't really write lyrics, but I have a lyricist in the house, so I, I I've, I'm a little bit lazy with with getting with getting good lyrics down. I don't I kind of don't have to right now. Yeah, yeah. You hey, know? you got to know your strengths um, and weaknesses. Yeah. But uh, you know, I I when I'm collaborating with my father, and I'll send you the collaboration that I'm talking about in particular. But I'll send him. It'd be like hum me something, mumble something, go la yeah. la la. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and so like a a a, a chorus will all be la di da and a pre-chorus will be some mumble shit and mm-hmm. then something may just be straight hummed in the verse you know yep. and he can and he can write based on that cadence and that melody absolutely very common in the in the songwriting world nowadays that's how a lot of things get done well it's it's real convenient like especially with auto tune yeah sure Mm-hmm. Mumbles and auto tune, it's like they go hand in hand. And, and you know, it goes back to where you don't even have to really say too much because, you know, it's just like little short little bursts of phrases. Right. It's, yeah. No, and that's that's the that's the beautiful thing about the digital age. I mean, I, I will admit, I'm 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 reluctant to start using things like auto-tune and melodyne and shit like that because like i know as soon as i start using it i won't stop nope there's um, no going back bro and if you do start i would suggest doing melodyne because it's less of a it's less of a high dose it's it's more technical where you can you know you can actually use it without hearing hearing it right it's, so you can use it just for the correction and not for a vibe like a lot of a lot of people do you know Right, and that's but yeah. You're so right. You're so you're so brilliant to know that at you know at this stage in your life. That's amazing. Well, stay away, stay away from the dark side. Ladies and gentlemen, I have had an immense amount of fun sharing this conversation with my big brother Genesee Lewis with all of you. And the fun is not going to stop today. Tune in next week. We're going to have part two with Genesee Lewis, as well as some new music to share and some more gear to geek out on. But for now, this has been Daniel, the D3 Cohen, signing off from Blue Gold Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record.